My name is Alex Bailey. And I am Alexa Ruel. And you're listening to Brainstorm, exploring minds and behaviors. Hello and welcome back to Brainstorm, exploring minds and behaviors. I'm Alex Bailey, and with my colleague Alexa, today we're going to be delving into a very interesting topic, that of how human beings make decisions. Decision-making, in and of itself, is a complicated topic. Trying to make decisions based off of a whole bunch of information that's coming our way from the outside world can be extremely challenging. For example, while you may think that it's a very simple decision to choose the type of food that you'd like to have each and every morning for breakfast, they're actually gentle influences based off of the world around you and your previous experiences that are guiding you to choose one option over the other each and every day. In addition, the types of decisions that we make in our lives can vary from those that are very simple, such as deciding whether to turn a key or press a button to start our car, to the very complex, such as where we see ourselves in 10 years, or envisioning the type of people that we would like to become. Interestingly, the one commonality that exists for all decisions is that each of the choices that we make are all based on different forms of chemical transmissions and mechanisms that are happening inside each and every one of our brains. To be able to explore this topic in greater depth, today we have three extraordinary guests joining us on the podcast. Our guests come from a variety of universities, both in Canada and in the United States, and are all enthusiastic about exploring how humans and mammals more generally make decisions. Our guests also come from various disciplines, including behavioral neuroscience, the neurobiology and psychology of decision-making when it comes to social decisions, and finally, the perspective of marketing and business. A disclaimer in advance, I am not an expert by any means in decision-making, but Alexa is. So many of the questions that we'll get today are taken from her breadth of experience and perspective on how human beings make decisions. Without further ado, let us introduce our guests to you. To begin with, Dr. Mihaela Yordanova. I'm Mihaela Yordanova. I'm an associate professor in the Canada Research Chain Behavioral Neuroscience at Concordia University in the Department of Psychology. And what my lab looks at is how animals form associations about events in the environment. And those associations can be repetitive or aversive, learning how to predict those kinds of outcomes. And what are the neurobiological mechanisms that regulate uh, associative learning? Our second guest for the day, Tanya Singh. My name is Tanya, and I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Marketing at the John Wilson School of Business. And I study decision-making, but in a consumption context. And specifically, I examine what happens when, con when consumers don't make decisions. So there's a term in uh, marketing, which we call choice deferral, which is basically putting off choices. And so I examine why consumers put off choices and the consequences of putting off and lastly, but not least, Mark Luis Vives. My name is Mark Luis Vives. Um, I'm a postdoctoral researcher at Brown University. And I study how people make spe specifically social decisions, like who to trust 
and um, under uncertainty. So how do they uh, manage to resolve that uncertainty and the different strategies they might use to, to do so? Thank you everyone for being with us. So myself and Alex on Brainstorm today. I'll kick it off with a very general question. In your field, if you had to kind of define what the process of decision-making is, how would you, how would you define that to someone who's just like, what's decision-making to you? I mean, I come from marketing, but a lot of the theory in marketing is actually borrowed from psychology. Um, and so in a consumption context, you think about decision-making as, uh, you know, firstly, information processing. So looking at stimuli and sort of processing that stimuli. And then in terms of uh, products, we think about it in terms of attributes, uh, the, the evaluation of attributes, right? So for a consumer, certain attributes might be more important than others. And so depending on the information that is provided to you, you may prioritize certain attributes over others and evaluate different product alternatives along the same attribute and try to find the superior alternative and then sort of make a decision. However, you know, obviously this is um, the way I'm describing it is a very sort of simplified kind of scenario, right? And usually when you are making decisions out in the wild, in a supermarket, for example, uh, the alternatives are not explicitly listed. There is a lot of inference that has to be made about alternatives and uh, about attributes, et cetera. And so uh, there's a lot of uncertainty that also comes into decision-making. That's super interesting. Um, I stuck on the word uncertainty there. So Mark, just a moment ago, spoke about uncertainty in social contexts. Do you have a similar definition for decision-making in a social environment? I mean, I think there are a lot of differences, um, more than sometimes we like to agree because we need to argue that there are specific processes in social decision making. At the same time, I do think that there are some processes, especially about when you are interacting with people, uh, that are qualitatively different from when you have to like buy some goods, no? which is basically that you are suffering more uncertainty in relation to how this the other person is feeling, what are their intentions, their beliefs, their emotions, there are a lot of information that is unknown to you and not only is unknown, so it's it's unreductible um, uncertainty. So in that sense, I think this is why um, social uncertainty is uh, like a special kind of uncertainty and it's a very interesting um, domain of a study. Absolutely. It seems very complex to me to have, uh, you know, not only one person making decisions, but to have a whole other person to consider when making that decision. Very interesting. Um, and then last, Mihaela. How about you? Yeah, so I think when we think about um, decision-making in animal studies, one thing that we can do is really control how we're going to study it. So we often think about decision-making in terms of making a choice between alternative outcomes um, or options, and those can be very well controlled in, a, um, in an experimental setting in a way that can be difficult in social circumstances. Like Mark just said, you don't only think about what your options are, but potentially what's available to someone else. Uh, and a lot of uncertainty when it comes to consumer choices that you in a way can control. So you can provide an uncertainty or an uncertain environment within animal studies where you can control the level of that uncertainty. Now, often when we study these, we study them potentially within an instrumental setting, um, but we don't have to. We can use cues in the environment uh, to try and help us make a decision or, or make a choice. 
And that could be done in a very simple Pavlovian setting too. And we can think about decision-making uh, not only being an option in terms of choosing something that gives you a higher reward over something else, but it could be conflicting win-wins, right? So another way to think about it is how can we generate conflict in a very simple way? And a very popular, widely spread conflict is when you learn something and then you have to update that learning and learn something new. So we can have acquisition in a very simple uh, animal study. You can have a cue that signals an outcome. It could be a rewarding outcome or an aversive outcome. And then what you can do is change the contingencies and make that cue no longer signal the same outcome. It could signal a different one, but even more simply, just not single, uh, signal that outcome at all. So we have an acquisition and an extinction memory, and they're completely the opposite to one another. And how do we make a decision under the current circumstances or the current context? Which one should we behave in line with? Should it be the original one? Should it be the most recent one? So these are some of the ways that we can think about um, decision-making in a way um, that is somewhat different to what we've heard today from, from Tanya and Mark. One quick follow-up I had for that is a lot of you kind of talked about decision-making and choosing or choice. Are these two terms used interchangeably in your field or not? I mean, I, I remember myself making the same question when I was a PhD student in the econ department. And basically what they told me, and I believe them, was that classically choosing is between options that are well-defined and decisions are um, more general where you don't need to have a, a set um, that is um, basically um, defined for you. So that's, I think, the great distinction between the two. Mm -hmm. Now, I think it also comes from um, a lot of classical work looking at how the way you ask um, preferences um, to people changes their preferences. And then, and then at that time, um, in the 80s and 90s, um, that psychologists and economists were doing this, it was very relevant to make these distinctions between decisions or choices. And also like sometimes economists would do something like um, asking for a price to sell something, probably Tanya knows more than me in, in that regard. Yeah, so, so I th that's my understanding of the distinction between choices and decisions. Yeah, I think from from my my field as well, um, looking at decision making strategies, we typically think as the choice of the choice is like the the outcome. Like, what did the participant do after they had all the decision making processes help them get there? Um, I'm curious, Tanya. I see you. I see you nodding along. Do you see it the same way too between choice, choosing, and deciding, or is it more similar in your field? Uh, no, I think I see it pretty similarly. I think the only thing I would add is that. Um, at least in the consumption context, the way we see it is it's a, it's a, it's a sort of stepwise decision-making process that gets you to the choice. And so I think those decisions that you make along the way, I mean, we think of them as um, being sort of disparate and, and sort of separate, but, you know, they don't have to be, they can actually be temporarily sort of simultaneous. So we like to think that consumers look at a, look at a set of alternatives and then narrow it down to a few alternatives that they actually like and then narrow it down further from those to one that they prefer the most, right? So we call that sort of consideration set formation. So, you know, these are the alternatives that you will consider when you're finally making your choice. And so that's probably, you know, that shows the distinction between what a decision is and what a choice is, because the decision is 
you know, may, maybe going from a slightly large assortment to a smaller assortment that you prefer. And then choosing from that small assortment is then your sort of final choice. Um, but sometimes, you know, it can also be that you just like one option, you know, you sort of know as soon as you see the assortment that you like one option more than the others. And so temporally, we don't really know how these processes occur, but this is how traditionally marketing researchers have thought of the process of sort of decision making. I wanted to um, ask Mihaela a question here. So we are talking a lot about deciding and learning in humans, right? Which we can all kind of think about what that would look like because we've all probably learned or decided or chose something in our life. Um, But what does that look like in animal studies? Like, how do you know if a rat's learned something? That's a really great question, Alexa. And it really goes back to when you were originally asking about decision-making versus choice. Uh, Are they the same? Are they different? Um, And I think... Um, it is really the case that decision-making is something abstract. We can't necessarily observe it the way we can observe very specific behaviours, but choice is a specific behaviour that we can see. So learning in a way is similar. It is something that is abstract that we need to infer from behaviour, particularly in animals. So we can ask a human, "Do you have you learnt this? Do you know this? Um, and they can answer, but animals cannot. What they can do is behave in a particular way that's indicative of having learned something. So if it's an instrumental action, they can show you that pressing the lever on the left, they have learned that it will give them a bigger reward in comparison to the lever on the right. Uh, And you can see the choice not only between these two options, but in the neural data, you could probably see ramping up in neural activity leading up to the choice, suggestive of the fact that the decision-making process is happening uh, earlier in time. And learning can be really fundamental here. And and there's different aspects of learning that can influence the decision-making and the choice that comes. So at the most simple level, we can think about binary associations between cues and outcomes in the environment or between actions and outcomes. And we can think about them separately uh, or we can think about them as coming together uh, and we can think about them as building blocks of much more complex behaviours. Yeah, I think it's it's super interesting to think about how we're examining essentially the same or very similar processes, depending on if you're studying it in animals or in studies, you have certain liberties or certain restrictions, like you said, not being able to ask your participants, have you learned or, or checking in with them if they're confused or haven't really gotten it yet, um, but also certain liberties of controlling the environment much more um, carefully in animal studies than in humans. So maybe we can jump back to this concept of uncertainty. How do we learn something from the environment, learn to apply it, and then pick up when something's changing and the environment's maybe not so clear anymore? So something all of a sudden you've learned that, well, doing this in a certain way gives you a positive outcome, or this is the best route to get to work. And all of a sudden, maybe it's not the best route and things are happening more and more. Things start changing. You have to adapt to the changing environment. Specifically, what does uncertainty look like or how does uncertainty manifest in kind of social decision-making? So for Mark, um, what are the different aspects or features of decision-making that can become uncertain when we're engaging in a social decision-making context? Yeah, the, the most obvious uncertainty in social decision-making is, of course, um, about the behavior of, of what the other person is going to do. No? So like, we don't know if I if I start a new job and, and I'm meeting let's say 15 new people, I don't really know how they are and I don't really know whether they're going to be cooperative 
in, at work or whether they're gonna just work on their own and don't help. So that's uncertainty just at the um, consequence of, of, of my action with, with those people. And I think that uncertainty is quite similar um, to non-social um, uncertainty. And actually some of the work we have done is to, to compare and contrast the uncertainty um, in non-social scenarios with the uncertainty in social decision-making. And we see that there is some relationship between how well you tolerate uncertainty um, like in a very non-social way, like when you when you have to decide between different gambles, um, like lotteries, um, and that correlates to a certain degree um, with the uncertainty of trusting someone. Like if I give some um, this money to someone, is this person gonna gonna give give it back to me? Now, what is interesting for, um, um, for this from this work is not only this relationship is that this relationship goes away. Um, when you start gathering information about the environment. And I think that's very, even though it's relatively simple, it's also very strong in the sense of thinking of, about our kind of behaviors we do, which is basically gossiping. No, so gossiping in a way is try to, it's a way to reduce uncertainty. No, so when I start a new job, I, um, I can wait three or, or four weeks or two months to see you know, what to expect from, from these new people, or I can make a good friend and then get information from this source. And those are, those are the things that we do, but probably not thinking in that strategic man, manner for the, from those um, from most people. Like we don't think, okay, I'm gonna try to get as much information as I can from this person. But but at the end of the day, you end up doing so. And, and that reduces a lot the uncertainty of what to expect from other people. Super interesting. Again, I think it's something that we've all experienced and your answer really resonates with me that we do tend to, you know, in new environments, try to find a way to get more information. One of the ways to find kind of a buddy that can give you ins and outs of what the environment is. And that's, it's really cool to see that that does have parallels to kind of non-social decision-making that there seems to be some way that we make decisions that's somewhat universal across contexts. that really is to try to gain a better understanding of what we're dealing with in order to optimize our choices. Jumping to Tanya, so uncertainty made me think of choice deferral. Is it related? So do you see in your work that when the environment's more uncertain, people tend to defer choices more? And just to add on, is it sometimes better to think faster than to make slower decisions? So um, there's an interesting answer to that question. So when I first started... I did like, you know, like every other graduate student, I did a literature review on, okay, what's been, what's already been done and what's not been done. And I mean, I was always interested in the consequences of deferral because I, I did know through my sort of the courses that I'd taken that a lot of research has been done on why people defer, but not a lot of research has been done on what happens after people defer. But from the research that has been done on why people defer, there's actually an interesting uh, paper where they manipulated the time that people had to make a decision. So they basically gave people in one condition a lot of time and in one condition very little time to make a decision. And so you might think that the people who had less time actually have more uncertainty because you know they feel more pressure to make the decision faster and so they don't have enough time to gather information. But counterintuitively, what they found is that the people who had lesser time were more likely to make a decision than the people who had more time. And the reason for this, at least the reason that they inferred, um, is that when you have lesser time to make a decision, you prioritize on the, the aspect that you care about the most. 
So if I have a choice between three options, and if I have all the time in the world, I might sort of get nitpicky and say, well, I like this about A, but I like this about B, but I also like this about C. But if I have very little time to make a decision, then I say, okay, what do I care about the most? I care about, you know, if I'm buying a car, okay, I care about the engine. And so if the engine is the thing I care about the most, then A has the best engine, and so I'm just going to go with that. So what they found was that actually under certain uncertainties, a choice can be facilitated. Um, that's not that, that's not to say that that happens every time there's uncertainty, but this is just a sort of counterintuitive example. Um, in the kind of studies that I run, so we basically prime uh, people, we put people in, we randomize participants into a deferral condition and a no deferral condition. And so we both manipulate deferral using a scenario as well as by by manipulating the choice sets that we use. So sometimes if you want to increase deferral, what we do is we give them a choice set that is difficult to choose between. So basically we give them two alternatives that are very closely matched. And so if the alternatives are very closely matched, then that makes the choice much harder and that increases the incidence of deferral. Uh, however, if you have um, the other end, end of the spectrum is you have a choice set which um, in which one alternative clearly dominates the other. And so when you have that, then you have a clear alternative that sort of wins out, and then you have a lower incidence of deferral. So what we are actually manipulating is not you know, uncertainty, um, but sort of conflict, right? And maybe it is uncertainty also, because one of the things that happens post-choice and even pre-choice, in fact, in a consumption context and in most decisional contexts, is people engage in what's called counterfactual thinking. So, um, you know, if you're familiar with the emotions literature, there's this uh, emotion called anticipated regret, right? So if I have to choose between two options, option A and option B, let's say I wanna go on a vacation and I have to make a decision between Florida and, uh, you know, Los Angeles. So they're both beach cities in different parts of the US. Okay, I love the beach, I like sunny areas. They're both kind of similar. Um, and I just have, I'm having a hard time deciding between the two cities. If I make the choice to go to Florida, I'm going to keep wondering what if I had gone to Los Angeles, you know, would I have had a better time? Would it have been a better vacation? Would it have been more refreshing, et cetera, et cetera. And so this is a very basic human tendency to engage in counterfactual thinking. And so, um, if you think along those lines, then maybe engaging in a high conflict choice is engaging in a sort of. Um, choice that has more uncertainty. Tanya, just to piggyback on what you're saying, I have a question for Mihaela. Can this same phenomena of uncertainty also be studied in more of an experimental setting? And if so, how would this be done? Yeah, so I think we can definitely generate uncertainty uh, in an experimental setting. One of the simplest ways to do that is to have um, something called partial reinforcement. So if you go with a Pavlovian um, kind of setting, you present a cue, and on some trials, the cue will be followed by the outcome of choice, whatever, um, experimental choice as opposed to animal choice. Uh, so followed by a reward. On other trials, there may be no reward. And you can have probabilities that range from zero, so never reinforced, all the way to 100, continuously reinforced. So the animal is very certain with regards to uh, whether it's going to receive the outcome when the cue is presented, or it could be 50, 25, 75%. And these 
um, reinforcement contingencies can influence not only the strength of the association between the cue and the outcome, uh, but also other processes. So one such process is attention. So when you have uncertain outcomes, um, one theory of learning argues that what that does is it, enha it enhances the attention uh, that an animal will pay to a cue. So cues that don't have very clear relationships with outcomes in our environment need attention for the animal to learn what those cues signal. So you will divert all these attention resources to figure out what is going on in the environment in a way to try and resolve ambiguity, to try and resolve uncertainty and be able to better predict your environment. In a way, it's a little bit similar to what Mark was talking about. You go into a new workplace and you gossip around to try and predict your environment. The animals are probably not doing that, but they're using these different cues to try and figure out what is going on in their environment and how better to allocate um, their behavioral resources. Um, we can use uh, uncertainty in other ways. We can change the contingencies after they have been learned. Uh, so we have done this, like I mentioned earlier, with something called extinction, where you get the animal to learn one memory, and then you will change things up and get them to learn something else with regards to the same cue. And now we have two conflicting memories, and you can put them in another environment and say, what are you going to do? How are you going to behave? So um, that could be context, but it could be cues. So that leads to another uncertainty. Now there's an animal uh, presented with cues, and now that animal isn't sure. Should I be uh, afraid? Should I be going into the food court to collect reward? Uh, which memory should I rely on? Which one should I weigh in more heavily uh, to influence my behavior? So we can do it within the queue, you know, within a session when an animal is learning probabilistically, or we can do it by updating memories and, and challenging the system with different kinds of memories. Uh, it doesn't have to be extinction. That's a very simple, um, well, simple procedurally, not necessarily um, theoretically um, simple um, uh, memory, if you will, uh, but also you can do reversals. So when a cue signaled one kind of outcome, now we can signal another. And if you've set up two cues to signal two different outcomes, you can swap them around and see how the animal is learning about these changes uh, in the environment. And, and one thing that um, we have known for a while now is that this associative process uh, of changing, when you change things up, when you have different contingencies and you want animals to learn about them, uh, well, learning depends on something we called error. So, when you have uncertainty, you have a lot of error in your predictions uh, and that will engage a learning mechanism. Uh, so this learning mechanism is there to help you resolve the ambiguity of the environment or the uncertainty that you encounter in your environment. And ultimately, you strive to reduce these errors. You want to make perfect predictions because that means that you can behave in a way that's in line, that is adaptive, that is in line with, um, with your expectations or with your environment, uh, ultimately if you can best predict it. And if you cannot, uh, then chances are you're behaving in ways that may not be as adaptive, right? Going to check for food where maybe food isn't available uh, or, or failing to run away from a predator uh, when you really ought to. I'm kind of curious, how do researchers contemplate the concept of making a bad decision and being able to try to cope from making a bad decision to learn from it, to try to then maximize um, the, the reward the next time round? 
for us when we think about animals and the work that we do in the lab is really primarily Pavlovian, not so much focused on making uh, choices between different options, but it ultimately, to, as I mentioned earlier, to engage this learning mechanism, uh, you, you must get error, right? So you're making a poor decision, ultimately you get an outcome, which is either what you didn't expect or one that you didn't like. So you're gonna strive to make choices uh, that will ultimately lead to a better outcome. So uh, this could be done, for example, in avoidance. Um, these are kind of aversive studies where an animal may receive a foot shock, but if it has the option to avoid the shock, then experiencing that shock will then teach it that maybe it needs to do something differently to avoid it. Uh, so this changes the behavior. It gives the animal the choice to remain where it is or to go somewhere else uh, where shock isn't delivered. Or if they um, receive something that they did want like a reward and then they'll continue to perform that action. They'll continue, they'll, they'll learn an association and look for the reward um, on the basis of, of what they've received. So I think a lot of um, these aspects in terms of correcting behaviors that ultimately really require learning, require for us to update what we expect with this new information that is available, comes down to generating errors and learning from those errors. And we know that not only do we know this from behavioral work, but also from neuroscience. So there's been a lot of um, interest in uh, neuroscience to understand these errors because they're ultimately the teaching signal that helps us learn in many different circumstances. And dopamine has been linked here uh, and it can provide input across the brain really to, uh, to help uh, update um, uh, information. And so when Mark was talking about kind of emotional decision-making, you know, we can think about it as positive and negative events. Well, uh, as a first pass, dopamine has been linked to reward prediction error, which is really about um, rewarding events, things that we want to happen. And it does this in a really interesting way where it has a, a positive and a negative signal really reflecting when something that you want to happen happens but it's unexpected. But when you omit something that you want to happen, then what you see is a dip in the signal. So representing it in this um, uh, bi-directional space, neural space, if you will. And I think that is quite interesting in the sense that uh, you do have a teaching signal in the brain. So this is not something that we think about only in terms of behavior and learning. Uh, we have now observed it in the brain. Many people have reported it, um, but also, it gets us to think about, is it specific to just um, positive events, rewarding events? Or do we have something like this for aversive events? And can we link these um, animal studies with the emotional processing that we see in humans, where we have mismatch uh, in our emotional regulation, if you will. And I think even though uh, on the surface, they don't quite look the same, we could probably uh, use some of that information and see whether we have similar signals. So people have been focused on understanding prediction error in aversive settings. Uh, and there's been more of a push to try and understand does the dopamine signal have any role in aversive prediction errors? Uh, and that isn't really anywhere near as clear. And there's a lot more that needs to be done there. But by using these, by using repetitive events and aversive events, that too can help us in understanding not only how that is um, how learning is influenced on the basis of those events, how that generates errors and how the brain is processing this. But perhaps we could potentially link it to how humans are processing this information in a very different setting, but carrying some sort of a um, commonality uh, between the animal and the human studies without making it explicitly 
um, the same to the extent that we can do that. That is brilliant. Mark, I feel like you have something to add. Yeah, I mean, um, so about going back to the, a bit of to the original question, which is how do we learn that we're making bad decisions in, in a way? And, you know, in the lab, basically because we want to have a very controlled environment where we can, um, you know, draw conclusions, we kind of create a very like artificial environment in the sense that we can calculate on each trial what would be the best decision no? because we have we, we just can't say okay there are three these three options these uh, each option is associated with a expected value um, if you choose them and and then therefore because the agent is maximizing value that would be the the best choice so that's how we do it and now there is something fascinating when we go to the real world and i don't know actually i was just wondering how animals do this but um in the real world, what happens oftentimes is that the decisions you are making determines the feedback you get. And, the, and because um, you, can, you can go back to the original state in most scenarios, you, don't, you are never going to sample from, you can, of course, devote a lot of counterfactual, but that's just you and your, your imagination. There is no truth um, there, right? So basically, what is um, fascinating, if you think about it, is that there are a lot of decisions that are very hard to evaluate in terms of whether that's a good decision or not. And just with, maybe with an example, it's going to be very clear what I mean. So imagine that you are a, you're a company. And by the way, this is like classical work from Hogarth um, in like 70s that we were making these arguments about basically sampling bias. So imagine that you're a company and you, and you are sure that and, um, that your selecting process is very good because every time that you select one, one um, this person is actually very good at their work. No, and that's what you say. No, I come to you and I say, okay, how do you know that you are making a good process when selecting um, workers? And they say, well, look, we selected the last time, then we selected last year, they were very good. Now, what they're doing, and they don't, they don't know that, and most, um, we do that all the time is, they have a huge sampling um, bias because, of course, they are on, they are only observing the people working that they already that they selected. So they can't know. Actually, it's impossible to know if they were uh, selecting well or not. Because in order to know that, they will, what will, they will have to do is they will have to select people that they wouldn't select, and then only then they could get a measure, a baseline of okay, what is the real expected you know performance of choosing randomly a candidate. But now, if you tell that to companies, they're going to say, you are insane. We're not going to do that because we really trust in what we're doing. So basically, they are all doing those things that which are untestable and unclear that, that they work. And I think a lot of these are called like what is called, I think it's wicked environment, which are environments where you get delayed feedback. And the feedback is always uh, biased in the sense that because you made that decision, we are only going to observe a, a certain um, kind of uh, feedback, but you will not be able to learn from the from the. Now I don't know how animals solve this in the in in, in their in their environment or if they ever solve it. Um, but I, I I do know that humans fell into these traps all the time, and that actually is relevant for how um, important or how much you can rely on your intuition and how much you can rely on your on deliberation. That is just incredibly cool. Now, 
because we're kind of beginning to run out of time for today, ladies and gentlemen. We have a special question that's been brought to you today by members of the Brainstorm team. That is, do human beings have any kind of level of free will in the types of decisions that they make, or are we kind of a specialized form of input-output machine where we have different types of experiences or signs that we take in from the outside world, and these sort of cause us to react or to make decisions that we otherwise would not make if they were not present. I think free will is something that any undergraduate of psychology has been exposed to, right? The concept of do we have it, do we not have it, uh, to what extent it influences our decisions. And as somebody who studies basic associative learning, you know, the building blocks of memory, if you will, and I'm studying animals, um, then there is an argument to be made that as we form these different associations, they guide our actions, uh, perhaps we are behaving to some degree somewhat reflexively uh, without really necessarily thinking through each one of those actions. Um, and often, no matter how complex our behaviour is, we could potentially at least make the argument that we could reduce it down to uh, a number of simple associative processes, if you will, or maybe it could be emotionally based that ultimately lead to us reacting uh, to events in our environment as opposed to thinking them through. So one thing that I thought was really neat that uh, Tanya mentioned, that was that if you give people a shorter amount of time to make a decision, they actually may be able to make a decision in a way that when you give someone a much longer amount of time where they can deliberate, uh, they may find themselves being more paralyzed, um, uh, paralyzed by this process. And I think there, there may be something to that, where when you quickly have to make a decision, maybe it is a process where you very quickly, on the basis of what you have learned in the past, uh, assign a value to different uh, actions or cues in the environment, and therefore, you quickly, very snappily make that decision uh, in a way that when you have to weigh in all the outcomes, bringing in higher order processes, it can make it really difficult because you're weighing in the positives, the negatives, and how do you compare these different values, uh, if you will, to ultimately come up uh, with, you know, one value function, if you will, for each one of those options. And I think that can be a very complex process that, you know, it can be difficult to ultimately guide behavior if we do overcomplicate it in that way by potentially adding, you know, free will. Now, there is a point, like, I agree with, with, with what Mahani was saying, because sometimes I think that we, uh, we, we, we do overestimate the value or the, um, the function of top-down processes, no? So top-down processes, like, we just have goals and we um, implement them uh, and I want to go get coffee and I'm doing that. And there is this uh, idea, and that's what we do when we're really thinking through um, different options and deciding what's best. And, uh, and that's certainly true. Um, and I guess that would be the part that at least creates the illusion of will um, that we can say. Uh, but now, oftentimes, the bottom-up processes of, I just cross a restaurant that smells like curry, and I now want to have dinner, um, it's, they are very strong. Um, and we don't like to, to I, I guess, at least me to accept that those are very important. Um, but sometimes I, they're even the most important ones because 
if you think about it, actually your surroundings are telling you so much information about, about what you have to do that you can almost leave it um, just as, okay, I'm here today I'm in my office and therefore I have to work um, and I don't, I don't need to implement. And then it's when habits come and, and, and it becomes all less dependent on the web. So now, so I do think that we tend to overemphasize um, the, the, the top-down process and, um, but that's, I mean, that's just an opinion of course, and underestimate how much of bottom-up just associations um, end up making um, us making one decision or, or another. How about you, Tanya? Do you tend to agree? I don't. I, I think I do. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I think anything that we answer to this is obvious. You know, just like Mart said, it's personal opinion because it's hard to make. It's it's easy to make compelling cases for both, but I think um, personally. Um, so this is interesting to me from a sort of philosophical standpoint also because I have, I am working on a project which looks at moral decision-making. And so it's actually about like the trolley problem and how people respond to the trolley problem under certain sort of contexts versus other contexts. So, um, I mean, actually um, I'm working on it with some researchers in information systems. So they basically look at the role of technology in decision-making, right? So, I mean, one of the aspects. And so what we're looking at is do programmers respond to the trolley problem differently from people who are not programmers, right? And so you can argue that if you're a computer programmer, uh, you know, when you, pro when you perform a programming task, you have to think in a very sort of um, structured kind of syntactical kind of way, you know, it's almost like uh, thinking in a second language, right? And so uh, you have to follow these rules. You have to really plan out what your program is going to do how it's going to do it. You have to you know, think in a very logical kind of manner. And so we argue that this deliberation makes people more deliberative and it leads to, um, in the sort of moral decision-making literature, you have this idea that, uh, which is sort of borrowed from, uh, which is posited by Green et al at Harvard and it's borrowed from basically Kahneman's thinking fast and slow approach, which is that you have these slow processes that are more deliberative and fast processes that are more sort of uh, immediate and affective. And so when you are thinking fast, you tend to make the sort of deontological choice, which is sort of the emotional choice, which is sort of you say, harming anybody is wrong. And so I'm not going to harm anybody. And so, you know, I'm going to sort of, uh, um, so in the trolley problem, when you have to push someone off the bridge to save these five people who are going to be killed by the trolley, you decide not to do that because you basically condemn any form of human harm. But then when you deliberate more, the, the idea is that when you deliberate, you actually do some sort of cost benefit analysis and you say, well, if I do this, I kill one person, but I save five people. And so that's actually a better outcome for the common good. And so I'm going to do that. So our argument is that programming makes you more deliberative, ergo makes you more utilitarian and we find evidence to support it. This is probably the most sort of important context of free will versus sort of determinism, right? Where, where we can actually harm someone versus it's a, it's a matter of life and death. And even there, there's some thing in the context, in the environment that can actually shift whether or not you were engaged in such a sort of serious action, right? And so that pushes me to think that there's, you know, less free will than we think that there is. After having heard Mark and Tanya speak and, uh, 
what might be important to kind of remember is if when we think about free will, if we don't think about it as being binary, right, sometimes our behavior is a product of free will, sometimes it isn't. I think it can also lead to something unexpected, which is forgive ourselves for making bad decisions, because maybe it's not because of this process of deliberation and we made a mistake and we can't forgive ourselves for doing that. And, and, and it could be about the way we are with other people, uh, the way, you know, for something that we have bought. I think it is really something that is ubiquitous across life. And I think if we do allow for these more basic processes that can influence our behavior, then potentially we could be more open to, to changing those, right? And, and recognizing when we have made uh, a mistake, right? We've made the wrong choice and we can correct it without having to feel that we should justify the choice that we have made because we did it and we feel that we should stand by our choices. I, I think there may be something to, to this in thinking about behavior more generally. One last question. If you weren't studying or doing what you do today, so a researcher in your field, what would you do? I think there's many things that I'd want to do. Um, but one thing that stands out is when I was a kid, I really wanted to be an investigator. And I realized that I'm really afraid of seeing dead bodies. So then that's how I ended up deciding to be a different form of investigator, um, a, a researcher. But I think you know, having problems to solve and figuring out the solutions is really quite a general thing. So maybe not a criminal investigator, but maybe a historian is something else that really uh, I enjoyed when I was in school. So being presented uh, with different evidence, if you will, photographic evidence uh, from a certain event and having to make a decision, how can we be sure whether this is real? Could it be doctored? What does it tell us about uh, the time that we are studying? So I think this is probably something that uh, I would have done. Um, but now that life is changing, I recently watched a show on Amazon Prime called The Expanse. I don't know if you know it. And that really got me very excited about going into space. So maybe I would have been a <laughs> physicist. Who knows? <laughs> I love it. Tanya, how about you? Um, I think I would have liked to be a doctor. Um, but also, like Mihela, I sort of realized that I don't like looking at blood and I don't like cutting into people's bodies. So I wouldn't make a very good doctor. I mean, I would I would probably, I don't know, I've become a doctor where you didn't need to be a surgeon or do any surgery. But um, I think I'm helping people in my own way now. Absolutely. And Mark, how about you? So... Um... So when I was 12, I think I used to say a food critic because the idea that you were going to get paid to go to restaurants and then criticize them was so insane to me that I was like, this is what I should. And I, and I used to be a kid that eat like insane, like a lot. So, and I'm still, I mean, I'm kind of that same person. So, so that would be one, one option. Uh, that I, uh, that I, that I, I think it was a very good idea as a kid. I don't know why I didn't even try, but. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you to the three of you on the behalf of Brainstorm. It is such a pleasure to have you on the show, and we cannot wait to hopefully have you again someday for a future episode. If you like what you've just heard and you're interested in learning more about our podcast, our episodes, our mission, or maybe you want to join us as a guest, reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or simply email us at brainstorm.podcast.mtl at gmail.com. Until then.
We look forward to brainstorming with you soon.